Good morning. You look exactly one week and one hour older. <laughs> well, look at it this way. We're an hour closer to all the things we're looking forward to. That's a bonus. I'm going to make a correction over what I did in the last service. Um, today we're going to be looking at chapter 25 and 26. <clears throat> chapter 25 and 26. And I'll be bouncing around a little bit. In the last service I read all of chapter 26. So this service I'm going to read all of 25 and 26. So we better get started, huh? No, I'm, I'm just kidding. But I do want to tell you just a little bit about chapter 25, and then we're going to pick up with verse 15 in chapter 26, and I'll fill in some other spaces. But let me just explain that in chapter 25, we begin with a new provincial governor, Festus. And Festus, uh, as governor, his seat of provincial power in this area is in Caesarea, which is where Paul, you'll recall, was left when we were in chapter 24 with Felix. And he was there how many years? Two years. So now, Festus has become the provincial governor. And the first thing he does when he arrives, Caesarea is on the coast, is he goes up to Jerusalem to meet the leadership of Jerusalem. And that's an important move, isn't it? Because if you're kind of the ruler of over the, all these people, or you have governorship, then, of course, you've got to get along with all the power brokers. So he goes up to Jerusalem, the capital, and the place of the temple, and the place of the seat of the religion of the people of this entire region. And he meets with the leadership, and they bring up Paul's case. And they, this is in the first 12 verses, they want Festus to do them a favor. Give us jurisdiction over Paul. He's guilty. Give him to us. Well, Festus is willing, but he has to do it the Roman way, meaning a hearing in Caesarea. And that takes place in verses 4 through 7. In verses 8 through 12, Paul, in this hearing, refutes the charges that the leadership bring against him in Caesarea, but he smells the stink of political favors being traded when Festus suggests to him that they try the case and settle this once and for all in Jerusalem. Of course, we're told, and, and we knew this from, from before, that they don't, the, the Jewish authorities want to do away with Paul. They don't even want him to get to Jerusalem. They want to ambush him and kill him. And, and, and Paul smells the trading of favors going on when Festus suggests that they, you know, change venue and try this case in Jerusalem. And so Paul plays the citizenship card. As a Roman citizen, he can appeal right to the top if he has grounds. And grounds were actually pretty liberal. And he has grounds. That is, a, is confirmed by Festus in consultation. And so Festus says to Paul, to Caesar, you will go. 
Now, in town also, to meet Festus is Agrippa, King Agrippa II. Agrippa has a, a kind of a territory. He covers, he has, he was appointed by the Romans, of course. Everyone is uh, now, but he has control over, over Galilee, which is north, and then across the Jordan in Perea and all that territory there. He's the king under Roman rule. So he wants, of course, to glad hand Festus, tell him what a great guy he is. A lot of, you know, politicking going on. So, so here comes the king with Bernice and his whole entourage, you know, Quite a big deal in fanfare. He spends several days with Festus. And while he's there, Festus, and this takes place in verses 13 through 22, is a conversation between the governor Festus and Agrippa about the case. Yeah, the case, the case of Paul. And then, just before we get to our chapter, they... Decide to have a hearing. Agrippa wants to hear Paul himself, so they have a hearing. Everyone's there. It is pomp and circumstance, and Paul is brought in. And Festus says, behold the man. This is the guy. And then we come to verse 1 of chapter 26. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Now, let's pick up with verse 15, because Paul now has told them what his life was like and now he's going to tell them not just what his life was like before but what it's like now because of what happens on the road to Damascus and then he's going to tell us what his life is like all the time because he believes in Jesus. So verse 15, then I asked who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now, get up. Stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you've seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes, turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now, he's talking to Agrippa, remember? Agrippa said, back in verse 1, explain yourself. And all through, he keeps speaking to Agrippa. Five times, Agrippa, King Agrippa, most excellent Agrippa. And now he says, so then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. First, to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, and to all Judea, and to the Gentiles also, I preach that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. 
which is basically his translation of what Jesus told him to do. That is why the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But I have had God's help to this very day. And so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. And I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. That the Christ would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead, would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. Which is what happened to Paul and what he told Paul to tell others. Open their eyes. See the light. Come to the light. Oh, okay. You got that. At this point, and this, is, this always happens... At this point, Festus interrupted. And that's really, in my opinion, not strong. It says, at the top of his voice, he shouted. So, that's not just an interruption, but I guess technically it is. Festus shouted at the top of his voice, You are out of your mind, Paul. Your great learning is driving you insane, or you're raving. I'm not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him, unlike you, Festus, who interrupt me. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa Do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, Short or long, I pray God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. The king rose, and with him the governor and Bernice, and those sitting with them, they left the room, and while talking with one another, they said, this man's not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if not been for his appeal to Caesar. I like the way this begins. Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. That's what Agrippa tells him. I came to hear you. And you have permission to speak for yourself. It made me think of the times when my mom told me I could speak for myself. But the tone was maybe just a little different. Can you explain yourself, she would say. This better be good. And, of course, my explanation, my defense was, well, I was just doing what the other guys were doing, Jimmy and Billy, you know. I was just doing what they were doing. And I, I, I want to bring something into view here because I, I really think Paul is being asked to explain himself. Can you explain yourself, Paul? And Paul is explaining himself here in chapter 26. 
But the only thing that makes sense of his explanation is Jesus. And that makes me think, how much of our lives can be explained without Jesus? I mean, if somebody said, explain yourself. Well, there's nothing to really explain. I'm just doing what everybody else is doing. I'm just like everybody else. I'm just like Jimmy and Billy and Mary and Jane. What's to explain? But see, you take Jesus out of the equation here with Paul, and it doesn't make sense. The living Jesus. You take him out of what Paul's saying here, and it just doesn't add up. It really doesn't. And that point is made very clear back in chapter 25 in verse 18 and 19. During that conversation with Agrippa, the case of Paul comes up, and Festus says, Agrippa, I really need your take on this. I cannot, you know, I had this hearing, and it was not what I expected. I mean, the whole issue, the whole affair, was some odd disputes within their own religion, and some dead guy named Jesus, who Paul claims is alive. That's what it says. Some dead guy named Jesus who Paul claimed is alive. So help me with this, Agrippa. I mean, this guy has appealed to Caesar and I've got to write a report. I can't put in that. What explains this? You see, the presupposition of Festus, a general pagan, his perspective is dead men don't rise from the dead. Dead men don't live. So what do you make of this guy Paul? There is really an issue here. There's no explanation for Paul if Jesus is dead. And that makes very profound to me the question that the Lord kind of laid on my heart when this all just congealed, just kind of gelled in my mind as to what's going on here. John, if you're asked to explain yourself, does your whole life, does the sum of who you are make sense without Jesus or with Jesus? And I think that's the question we all have to ask ourselves. That's the bottom line. And i got to tell you, when I was a new believer... And, and I'm not going to tell you my whole story, but I, the, the conviction 
that led me to bow in my heart before Jesus Christ took place on a canal bank when I was alone. Late in the evening, the stars were out. I was there all alone. An irrigation ditch. You know what I'm talking about? And the big issue for me was who's going to be Lord. And I had messed things up pretty good at that point. And so I said, Jesus, I want you to be Lord of my life and Savior. And I didn't really know how to begin. I wasn't involved in, I mean, I, I had been kind of reared in a church, but I didn't want any part of the church. So I said, how do I, how do I make you Lord? And it, it really began with a question that I tried to ask myself, and I, I still try to do this. Um, how can I do this by faith? How can I do this by trusting you? In other words, um, how is this day different than this day? Uh, yesterday, I wasn't a follower of Jesus Christ. I was maybe an almost follower, but I wasn't a follower of Jesus Christ. I hadn't made him Lord. I hadn't committed my life to him. I mean, when I say committed, I mean, you and me, Lord, no matter what, no matter who, I'd love to have a big crowd to move with. You know, I'd have lots of friends to cheer me on. I'd like all those amenities and extras. But really what I'm saying, Lord, is you and me now and here on. No matter what. And so next day comes. What's that mean? It means, okay, how do I live my life? The same life. The same kinds of things that happened yesterday. What's different about it today? Your Lord. And what does that mean? I trust you. I look to you for guidance. Doesn't sound that complicated, does it? It's an awareness that, Lord, you are given place in my life, and I, I apprehend your place in your Lordship. I claim your Lordship. I activate your Lordship. I realize your Lordship. I experience your Lordship by walking with you through faith, trusting you about things I can't control, turning things over to you and your judgment, you know, asking making my appeal to you for direction and guidance about this person or that person, this trial or difficulty, this trouble or that. It's really like that. And as I went along in my Christian faith, I, I started moving away from that. And a friend, my cousin, invited me to come to his church down in Southern California. I was, I was, getting, I was really drying up spiritually. And I, I was troubled by it. There was just no, no power, no energy. And this, the, I was in the college group, because uh, I was college age. And the speaker, I don't remember who he was. He was just one of the regular guys. And he posed a question that, that to this day I think is vibrant and vital. And I think it has a lot to do with this message. Are you, he asked, doing what you'd be doing anyway? Are you just doing what you'd be doing anyway? Or does Jesus really make a difference? And that's the essence, I think, of this passage. 
How much of our lives can be explained without Jesus? That's what Festus is looking for. An explanation of Paul without Jesus, but he's not going to have any of it. Paul isn't because it's all about Jesus. There's a before because of Jesus. There's a transformation because of Jesus. There's a reality, a believing reality because of Jesus. And that is the essence of what Paul is talking about here when Agrippa says, explain yourself, your defense. Explain yourself. And Paul talks entirely about Jesus Christ. And that is the essence of this message for you and for me. If the question is asked, explain yourself, where's Jesus in your explanation? Can you be explained without him? And what that's important for me is, I want people to see some stuff in my life that only Jesus can explain. Only Jesus, the reality of Jesus, the existence of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus can account for you, John, because of these things in your life. The way you think, the way you see the world, the way you conduct yourself, the way you serve others or care about others, the way you deal with difficulties. I want people to know it's because of Jesus. And I'll tell you, that convicts me. You might think because I'm the pastor sitting up here talking about it that I'm exempt from conviction here. That's not the way I see it at all. I'm really challenged by this. I don't think in this life we'll ever feel like we, we live enough, depend on Jesus enough. But we can learn some things about our story, the story of me and Jesus, the story of you and Jesus from Paul. And the first thing is Paul tells him about Paul before Jesus. And that's one of the things we have to keep in perspective. Who are you before Jesus? Can you remember? Paul talks about who he was. He describes himself as really an elite, religious zealot for God. So zealous that he excelled in the law, that he, he is a Pharisee of the strictest kind of denomination, you know, was he a Presbyterian, was he a Baptist, Uh, was he a Methodist? No, he was a Pharisee, that group. And the Pharisees, by the way, I know when we read about the Pharisees through the Gospels, we see a lot of the negative side of Pharisees. And just like Pharisees, a lot of churchgoers get to be the same way. They talk a good line, but they don't put their faith in Jesus on a daily basis unless they're in trouble. Then they want Jesus to pull them out of it or deliver them or they want a miracle or a new car. But when it comes to the whole disposition and attitude toward life, Jesus just gets in the way. That is true of a lot of churchgoers because it's been true of me when I've been a churchgoer. But the Pharisees were... The evangelicals, they were the ones who really took God's word seriously. 
They were the ones who said to the Jews, let's pay attention to God's word and let's put it into practice. Well, they got a little crazy with it, but they lost the grace part, but that's who they were at. And Paul says, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees, if you will. And he says, my life was totally devoted to the Lord, so much so that he begins to describe how he persecuted the Christians. And I see a guy who was really judgmental. I mean, he probably looked down on the Gentiles. He looked down on Jews who weren't really living their lives for God. And he definitely looked down on the Christians. And in their authority, in other words, he's saying, I did everything right. I didn't persecute them in my own authority. I didn't take this into my own hands. I had sanction, and I did all this for God, and I did it all until I met Jesus. And I think Paul wants to talk about the before because the before always magnifies the grace of God. And I th- you, we know why Festus, as we listen to the accompaniment, we know why Festus wanted Agrippa to hear Paul because he wanted to figure out what to tell Caesar. Do you know why Agrippa wanted to hear Paul? Because in the passage, actually, it says Agrippa initiates, I'd like to hear this man. Do you know why? I think it's because Agrippa is the last of the Herodian or the rulers in the line of Herod. Agrippa the one, <laughs> the, the second, Agrippa the second is the great grandson of Herod the Great. Remember Herod the Great? When some magi from the east told him that there was going to be the birth of a messianic figure, a king, what did he try to do? He had tried to have it snuffed out. You probably know Herod Antipas. That's his uncle. Herod Antipas, back in the early 40s, Acts chapter 12, he put to death the apostle James, the brother of John. Remember him, how he was donned in gold on that sunny day in all of his glory? He is... He wanted to, as it were, take the place of God. He died suddenly. Agrippa's father, Agrippa I. Um, I'm sorry, I said Herod Antipas had James killed. That was his father. His uncle had John the Baptist beheaded. Here is a history of family history swirling around Jesus and his followers And I think Agrippa II is intrigued when he hears Festus say, and some dead guy, Jesus, whom Paul claims is alive. And Paul addresses what he says to Agrippa. Five times he calls him by the first name. And here is what I think Agrippa is hearing Paul say when Paul refers to, to who he was 
before he met Jesus, he's saying it wasn't just your family that persecuted Christians. It wasn't just your great-grandfather. It wasn't just your uncle and your father, Agrippa. It was me. Look what I did. Not them, me. It was me that did it. I drove them from the synagogues. I pushed them to deny Jesus. I put them in prison. I cast my lot for the death penalty. I tracked them down. And yet it was to me that the Messiah revealed himself and said, I want to use you. I want you to proclaim the light that I have shown you. I want you to tell others, your own people and the Gentiles, everyone, I want you to tell them about me. And Paul is saying, Agrippa, no one is beyond God's grace in Jesus the Messiah. What's your story before Jesus Christ? When I think back on who he was and who I am today, I do wish everybody was just like me. I wish everybody knew Jesus Christ the way I know Christ. That's got to be a huge motivation in your heart. And if Jesus Christ is all he wants to be in your life and in mine, we'll never be asked to explain our lives where Jesus won't make sense of all the math. He'll be the factor that helps us do the arithmetic. Tell them your story, you and, and Jesus. Tell them about you before Jesus. Tell them about you because of Jesus. Do you know that a lot of people say some pretty strange stuff in the name of Jesus? A lot of people justify strange stuff in the name of Jesus. If you doubt me, just Google, Jesus made me do it. I'm not going to go into any stories. Just Google, Jesus made me do it. But the fact is, here is what Jesus, Messiah Jesus, made Paul do. And I want you to see it. It's very distinctive. Because if you say, it's because of Jesus, I want you to know exactly what you're talking about. Look at verse 18 of chapter 26. Here's what Jesus made Paul do. And really, Paul's entire job description is summed up in this. Paul, I want you to open their eyes. Open their eyes. Now, what does it look like when you open your eyes? Or what's the recipe or the chemistry of opening a person's eyes. Here's what open-eyed people do. Open-eyed Jesus people. Open-eyed you and me. And it's laid right out there in verse 18. They turn from darkness to light and from Satan's power to God's. That's one. From light, from darkness to light, from Satan's power to God's power. So there ought to be evidence of God in our lives, of light in our life, of His power, not just my power. I mean, are you just doing what you'd be doing anyway? You're not going to see the power of God. Secondly, 
receive forgiveness of sins. Live as forgiven people. Live as people who have been deeply touched by the grace of God. That's the difference Jesus makes. Your story because of Jesus, because of his grace, his forgiveness. Third, this is all in verse 18. Third, you receive a place among the sanctified. Now, sometimes I have noticed among people who've been around church a lot, they think sanctified means holier than thou or somehow almost or on the way to getting closer to perfect. Obviously, people who are sanctified, if we draw upon the meaning of sanctified from the Old Testament and the New, sanctified means totally dedicated to the one who does the sanctifying, if you will. Look, the concept of this in the Old Testament is when something was under the ban, like when the people of Israel went into a foreign town and God would say, when you go in there, you don't touch this stuff. This stuff belongs to me. This is mine. It's dedicated to me. It has my name on it and nobody else can touch it. It's holy unto me. That is the concept of sanctified. And what he's saying here is that you, when you open their eyes, they are going to move from light, from darkness to light, from Satan's power to my power. They're going to know forgiveness. And he says, they're going to become mine. Now, when you become the Lord's, when he puts his name on you, when he lets no one else touch you because you are his possession, then you are holy unto him. That's why we're called saints. Not because we're not sinners, but because we belong to him. But listen, when you really belong to him, then you start to care about what he cares about, don't you? You realize that you bear his name. His heart becomes your heart. You love the things he loves, hate the things he hates, care about the things he cares about. See people through his eyes and not your own human eyes. This is why the church should be so dynamic in the world today. And why Christians should be so dynamic for God, so distinctive that people are saying, explain yourself, won't you? But sometimes I look in the mirror and I feel kind of sad on this issue. This really hit me between the eyes here. Because it took me back to that question. And it takes me back to the, the question here. Are you just doing what you'd be doing anyway? Justifying your life in the name of Jesus? When not really belonging to Him? I mean, or living like it, <laughs> it powerfully moves me. And the fourth thing, through faith in me. This is Jesus talking about, through faith in me. Prove your repentance. Prove you've turned to me from the world. That's what that's about. 
This isn't about, this isn't something Catholic or monasterial where you go into a cell and you whip yourself. It's called flagellation. You beat yourself bloody. Oh, I'm such a sinner. This isn't what repentance is about. It's turning your life over to Him. Becoming His. Through faith, all of this becomes real. Through faith. And that brings me to the last point. Tell them the story of you believe in Jesus. You know, he shows here that, in fact, he says, God has helped me to this very day. He's looking right at Agrippa in all of his glory, his earthly raiment with Bernice at his side, his heritage, his Herod- he is the last Herodian ruler. And Bernice is his sister. Yeah, it's been the subject of quite a bit of scandal. She's, you know, if, if they had the paparazzi then, she would be on every magazine cover. She was beautiful. She left her husband for Agrippa II, his second, her second marriage. Later, when Vespasian, who will become emperor of Rome, when he finally subdued the Jews, destroying the temple, circling before that, those in Masada, or after that, his son Titus was at his side. You know who... Titus had an eye for? Bernice. Her sister was Drusilla, which we saw with Felix. And Paul says to him, Agrippa, this isn't something that happened back there. My testimony isn't stuck in five years ago or ten years ago. God brought me here today. That's what he says. God has helped me to this moment. This is a divine appointment, Agrippa. He says that in verse 23. And it just amazes me that just as he is bringing Agrippa to this point of decision, then Festus (laughs) screams at Paul, you're losing your mind. Isn't that just the way it goes? Just when I'm trying to make my point, a baby starts to cry. Or a phone goes off. Or someone starts the buzz of their mower outside. Isn't it interesting that just when God has his hand on our hearts, something distracts us. But you know, it's not just when Paul is looking you in the eye. It's each and every day. Each and every day, our lives are full of distraction. And if we're not believing Jesus now, there's not going to be any power. There's not going to be any light. We're going to be walking in the clouds of Satan's power. And people are not going to see the real reason for our lives In fact, they're not going to see any reason 
that draws them to something other than what they're already experiencing in their own life. And that is a shame that should touch each one of us. Pastor Saeed, any of you heard of him? He's an American pastor who's been in prison now for months in Iran. And he, like many Christians today, as we sit here, are being persecuted and beaten for their faith. By the way, you can Google S-A-E-E-D. We need to be praying for him and others. And you can hear his own testimony. But he says of his imprisonment in a letter to his wife that they are trying to break me. And he says, and I quote, I want to use these golden opportunities His words, not mine, to show my faith is not empty. They are telling him that they are wanting to break him to show that his faith is empty. And that is powerful to me. We don't face persecution here. Not yet. Nothing to speak of. We don't face persecution. You know what we face? Distraction. Distraction. Distraction that keeps us so preoccupied with the stuff that doesn't really matter. And if you don't know what the stuff is that really matters, just wait. Because as you get older, it'll become very clear to you. We are distracted from the stuff that really matters by stuff that doesn't matter at all. And this point in believing Jesus says these are not just empty times to be filled with my personal entertainment. These are times of great import. Just as Paul, when he faced Agrippa, says, God has helped me and brought me here to this moment. Is there someone asking you to explain yourself? You know what Agrippa said? He, he couldn't handle the heat. So he said to Paul, and I kind of like the King James Version. There's been a lot of ink spilled over the exact meaning, but almost persuadest me. That's the King James. You've almost persuadest me. I just don't want that to be, so to speak, on our tombstone. I don't want us just to sign on the dotted line I think what Paul is saying to us is we've got to live on the dotted line. Almost persuade us doesn't take us to living on the dotted line. Will you stand with me? Tell them the story of you and Jesus. 
Let him know, moment by moment, day by day, that's the only equation that makes sense of my life. Jesus. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the people that uh, have gone before us, that have walked in faith, that have encouraged us with their own lives. Thank you for the work of your spirit in our lives. And Lord, as we pray, we're aware of things in our lives that we're not dealing with by faith. And we know you're speaking to our hearts. Help us to trust you in these areas. Take that step of faith that lives on the wild side with you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. God bless you. If you'd like to pray with me, the elders, their wives, pastoral staff, about yourself or someone else, we invite you to come.